Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Students at the U.S. Army War College are often taught that there are five domains in which conflict takes place. Land, sea, and air, of course, followed by the more recent additions of space and cyber. Our guest today, Dr. Robert Farley, suggests that there is another domain that we should consider, and that is the finance domain. And so we've brought Dr. Farley here to the Army War College and into the virtual studio of A Better Peace to talk about his work uh, and about the finance domain. So Dr. Robert Farley has taught security and diplomacy courses at the Patterson School of Diplomacy and International Commerce at the University of Kentucky since 2005. He received his BS from the University of Oregon and his PhD from the University of Washington. Dr. Farley is the author of Grounded, The Case for Abolishing the United States Air Force, The Battleship Book, and Patents for Power, Intellectual Property Law and the Diffusion of Military Technology. Most recently, his, his publication, Waging War with Gold, National Security in the Finance Domain Across the Ages, will appear in the coming year from Lynn Rayner Publications. He has contributed extensively to a number of journals and magazines, and we are delighted to have him with us today. Welcome to A Better Peace, Dr. Rob Farley. Well, it is a, it is a delight and an honor to be here uh, again. Thanks, Rob. So I got I'm going to come right out and ask it. So when we say the, that there is a financial domain, how do you conceive of that, and how does that? How do you use the term domain to define the what, what financial work is? So I, I think I can answer that by uh, giving a little bit of the heritage of the concept, a heritage to the idea. Sure. Um, so I'm one of three authors for this book. Another okay. one is another uh, faculty member who worked here at the War College for a year, and another is an economist, Jeff Williams, from uh, uh, Transylvania University. Um, but the idea of the finance domain came up almost exactly as you described it, right, that I was here at the War College uh, for a year. Um, we talked a lot about land power, sea power, air power, and endemic to those concepts is this idea of a domain, right? Right? Mm -hmm. That there is the air domain, the sea domain, uh, the land domain, which we kind of have to, sort of have to retroactively impose on on land thinking, um, but. It also became quickly apparent uh, that we were talking about these two other domains that we had um, invented, right? And we had invented them in a, in, a, in a really important sense and kind of in a complicated sense, right? Um, because, you know, we invented cyber and we invented space, both in the sense that, um, you know, we literally developed the technologies that enable people to engage with one another and conduct strategic action within the cyber domain, um, which was something that didn't exist 35 years ago, right? Something that was completely outside of our experience. Um, you know, we, we invented technologies that allowed us to exploit the space domain perhaps 70, 80 years ago, depending on, on what your evaluation of the V2 rocket is. Um, the air domain goes back a little bit farther, mm -hmm. right? Uh, perhaps to the 19th century, um, depending on how you evaluate. Um, but it struck me that 
you know, if we can start thinking about sort of spaces in which uh, not just countries, but just generally actors, um, actors in international politics, can do strategic competition, mm -hmm. then if we can add two more domains, right, cyber and space, both in terms of developing the technologies that allow us to exploit them, but also in terms of developing the idea of a domain as a conceptual lens, really, for something that we can analyze how countries are interacting in cyber, in air, in space, then we don't have to stop there, mm -hmm. right? That we can continue um, and we can think up other domains, right? Now, the utility of this is just sort of, or, or the logic of this is just kind of really dependent on the utility, right? Mm -hmm. So does inventing another domain really give us anything else? And I think for cyber it does, and I think for space it does. Um, and so I thought I started thinking about this in terms of finance, and some of this was guided by, you know, a lot of the work that we did here uh, at at the War College, um, uh, you know, a few years back. Um, <clears throat> some of it came from my frustration from some of the conversations that we had about money and finance here at the War College. Mm -hmm. um, Everybody understands and everybody knows that money is important to war, right? That there's a critical connection between money and war. Um, we, have, we, we have mountains of evidence that people have understood since ancient times that there's a critical connect connection between uh, money and war. And yet, uh, in much of the contemporary strategic conversation that you'll have in the halls of a root hall here, um, you'll, you'll get conversations about the national debt and the size of the national debt. And they'll give you an absolute number. And they'll say, the size of the debt is this. And it's like, okay, well, what does that mean, right? How does that affect the strategic competitiveness of the United States? How does that limit or enable the United States to do the things that it wants in terms of strategic competition, right? Um, and so I was a little bit frustrated by that. Um, but something else that I was frustrated by, I'm a political science by training. Um, uh, you know, I did my PhD in security studies at the University of Washington. Um, and so I'm pretty familiar with a lot of international relations theory. Um, and international relations theory, uh, you know, sort of all of the major, uh, uh, the major schools, you know, realism, liberalism, neoliberalism, constructivism, None of them really think about money in a very systematic or complicated way. Um, realists certainly don't, right? Well, I was thinking because realists who don't want to talk about domestic politics or regime type because they want to talk about the system. If you start talking about money, especially if you talk about things like the debt, then you're actually getting into problems of domestic politics that a realist would rather never talk about. Right, right. Yeah. And so, I mean, you can go, and there are mentions here and there, but, mm -hmm. if, but if you go and read uh, sort of the classic uh, classics of 20th century um, international relations realism, the Carr, the Morgenthau, the um, uh, Kenneth Waltz, you will find very few mentions of money, mm -hmm. right? And it's an odd thing that somebody could, could look at the 20th century and think a lot about power politics and not think about the power of the gold standard, right? Mm -hmm. Not think right. about... Well, did it matter that uh, the uh, British pound held hegemony uh, over the world in the 19th and the early 20th centuries? Did it matter when that hegemony ended? Mm -hmm. Right? Does it matter for uh, alliance politics in the West that the dollar uh, is the reserve currency um, right. and that the Soviet Union never developed a similar sort of currency? And so realists... Uh, and there, there are exceptions. The big exception, I think, is Robert Gilpin, who mm -hmm. did write fairly extensively about financial right. matters. Um, but liberal, liberals are a little better, but they're not much better, right? So your sort of classic texts of neoliberalism and so forth in international relations, um, you know, certainly talk about the institutions that manage international life. And some of those institutions are financial. 
but they don't talk about them in the context of power, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, your Rob, your Bob Cohans and so forth will talk about how institutions endure after hegemony, but but what about institutions that perpetuate hegemony, right? Because mm-hmm. The United States envisions the financial institutions that it largely created on its own in 1945, not as something that was going to endure beyond the end of American power, right. but that something that pushed back the end of American power and something that perpetuated uh, American power. Right. Um, you know, also influential this was uh, Henry Farrell and Abe New Abe. Newman's book uh, on weaponized interdependence, which talked a lot about um, how power works in, in otherwise liberal networks and liberal institutions. And so we started thinking about, myself and my co-authors, Charles Danoff and Jeff Williams, started thinking about, well, okay, so how does finance matter? How does money matter? Um, and that led us to starting to think about a financial domain or a finance domain. Uh, and that, 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 that difference is, is apparently important to my co-authors. I, I mess it up all the time. But, um, and so we started also thinking about, you know, what are some of the other tools and concepts in the strategic conversation that could be brought to this idea of finance and how finance works? And so we started thinking about in terms of, does it make sense ever to think about an RFA? Right, a revolution in financial affairs, in the same way that strategic theorists think about revolutions in military affairs. Um, does it make sense to think about a financial commons um, in the same way that uh, strategic theorists think about the maritime commons and the cyber commons and the space commons? And so basically, what we did is we took those ideas and ran with them, um, and uh, sort of we we did a and and I think that a lot of you know. This is a survey. The book is a survey, and mm-hmm. a lot of sort of very good historians of the classical period and the medieval period will undoubtedly be frustrated um, with some of our treatments. But you know, we took a long look at history. Uh, one of the reasons we wanted to start in antiquity is because at the War College we start in antiquity. We, we start sure with do. Thucydides, and Thucydides talks a lot about money, and that makes it uh, a lot easier for us. Um, and so we sort of move forward through history, thinking about these revolutions in financial affairs, thinking about the development of financial commons um, across time, how hegemonic powers, how other great powers, how non-state actors use finance, use different technologies of finance in creative ways um, to uh, sort of pursue uh, pursue power and pursue hegemony, right, and to develop their own kind of power. So thinking about the way that you're, that you're talking about the finance domain, I'll try to, I'll try to get that right too. So, but uh, what is it that makes uh, an, an awareness of the finance domain now? Um, how does this, how is this distinguished from, let's say a, uh, an earlier sort of uh, Marxist or neo-Marxist interpretation of power, which emphasizes material uh, interests and emphasizes economic power. Um, so is, is how does, because I, I I get from what you're saying, right, that there's something more to it than just saying, you know, um, it's all about the money, honey. But there is a but there is a question of what is it about talking about the finance domain as a domain that makes it different than than say a a Marxist emphasis on the the the, you know, the importance of financial power. So one of the things we wanted to do uh, sort of straight away, um, because that question is going to come up a lot, right? Um, and we wanted to to draw this distinction between what we're talking about as the finance domain and what people would normally think about as uh, sort of economic power, mm-hmm. right? right. Um, 
because you know this this is going to be critical to distinguishing this argument not simply from the Marxists but also from the realists. Sure. Right, realists are just going to look. It's like okay, you have countries that are maximizing their resources, and and that's what's happening, right? And so what we wanted to really look at were the technologies of finance and money in particular mm -hmm. that countries could use in ways that were often very innovative or less innovative for you know, either maximizing their own resource bases, their own resource capabilities, or interfering in other people's, other states' ability to maximize their resources. Right. right? Sure. And so to give an example from, uh, from antiquity, um, and people in antiquity talked about this all the time, um, you know, the Persian Empire was a really gigantic, resource-heavy, resource-rich um, uh, uh, institution, right, organization. Um, but when you're, when you're listening to what the Spartans are saying uh, and the Greeks are saying about how Persia is maximizing its power, one of the things they return to is this question of the archers. Right, mm. which is the coinage, right? And so they are referring to a particular technology that the Persian state is using to transform what we might think of as a basic factor endowment into military power, right? And this seems to us to be awfully awfully obvious, right? But it wasn't obvious to the ancients until the Lydians and basically everybody else started using coin, coins around the same time. It wasn't obvious to the ancients until they started, they adopted these different technologies that made military power more potable mm -hmm. and made the Persian Empire more capable both of generating its own military power on the one hand, but then when we look at the Persian relations with Sparta, it also gives the Persians outsized diplomatic influence over other actors within their space. Right. right. And you can look at sort of other technologies. So we look at the uh, function of paper money in uh, the, the Chinese context, late medieval China. Um, we look at the development of central banking in the late medieval West, the gold standard, um, all the way down to, to SWIFT uh, and the various ways. Yeah. I was just thinking, because in the, in the current conflict with Russia, right, the, the fact that the West has avoided air, sea, space, cy cyber, but has leaned into using the finance domain in the in the, the fight against Russia, which of course, which leads me to a question before uh, you can think about this while you respond to that first comment, but that does the fact that up until now, let's say the decision to go with economic sanctions is often viewed politically as something separate from not only separate and different from, but let's say less kinetic, less uh, aggressive, less escalatory than uh, air, air, sea, land, space. But if we think of finance as a domain, does that mean we need to stop thinking about economic sanctions and financial warfare as something other than warfare? So I'm going to wrap those two together because I think I think that, that they are different facets of the mm -hmm. same of the same question. Um, and, and so one thing I'm going to push back on, right? I mean, we are not uh, we are not helping Ukraine resist Russia um, in the air, the maritime, or the land domains, maybe, but we certainly are in cyber and space, right? right? Okay. Sure. Um, you know that it, it, it's it's Starlink or SpaceLink or whichever uh, Elon Musk's corporation is um, that's helping uh, the Ukrainians essentially communicate with one another and reconnaissance, and so. Space, this is a space war. The Russia-Ukraine war is a space war, even though neither side is blowing up satellites. Mm -hmm. Right? They're both using space extensively, and we are lending our space capabilities. Um, you know, we know less about the details of the cyber war, um, but uh, I mean, there's every reason to believe that we are lending capabilities to so the Ukrainians. The, the idea that the the dog that did not bark, the fact that there hasn't been some kind of co complete 
uh, Russian cyber offensive suggests that there have been countermeasures. So right. there is fighting going on that's neutralizing at, at, at a certain level, the cyber issue. Right, right, yeah. exactly. Um, and I think uh, sort of if, if we can, um, and I, I don't think it's always the case, and I'll tell why, say why it's not always the case. It's not always the case that sort of the traditional domains, air, sea, and land, are, are, are uh, recognized as being more escalatory and more dangerous than, than cyberspace and finance. Um, but in this particular case, you're absolutely right, right? We are recognizing them as being, um, or, or, or we are judging them, and the Russians are also judging them um, to be less escalatory and to be less dangerous, right? That, that acting against Russia's interests in these three domains um, is probably not something that's going to start a nuclear war. Um, Another thing that's interesting, though, is that we are, I, I feel like we are developing into a situation where financial sanctions are being regarded as um, more acceptable and less escalatory than economic sanctions, right? And so the distinction here would be economic sanctions are ones that effectively shut down trade, right? They uh, prevent uh, industrial export, they prevent industrial import. I mean, we're doing that to Russia, but much more importantly, or at least much more aggressively, what we're doing is attempting to tear apart Russia's financial system and attempting to prevent Russia from utilizing the global financial commons, right? We're, we're trying to stop them from being financial. Um, and so uh, in a lot of the ways we talk about sanctions, and there's a you know, recent wonderful book about this, The Economic Weapon. Um, a lot of the ways we're talking about sanctions, people are now saying, well, sanctions are bad because they hurt people, right? They cause starvation. And now it's like, well, we don't want to starve Russians. What we want to do is make sure that Russian oligarchs can't move around their money, right? And that uh, Russian or the Russian military uh, industries cannot borrow money from uh, people on the international stage. And so cutting Russia off from its finance is actually in some ways a little bit more politically acceptable than uh, – than uh, some of the economic steps we took against Iran or Iraq in the right. past. Well, because there, there is, as you say, right, there is that implication that since uh, those who have access to these financial instruments are the better off, they are the elite, they are, they are the wealthier. Mm -hmm. So we're not making it, we're not blockading food shipments, uh, which of course the Russians are doing that, but we are not blockading food shipments to Russia. But, but keeping Russian oligarchs from being able to access SWIFT or being able to touch their investments overseas. Well, in that sense, so is if there is a finance domain that we want to we want to learn more about, um, should we then think of the development of uh, sort of the the transition from the pound to the dollar um, as as the most important strategic development? Of, of the modern world. And actually, I was just thinking about the petrodollar in particular as, uh, you know, that it needs to be considered a more important strategic devel development in history than perhaps some people do because it reinforces the dollar's power even outside of the power of the United States government. But it, but it, but it adds to the power of the United States government, the fact that everybody uses dollars, um, even if, you know, those dollars never touch the shores of the United States. So, yeah. So one of the RFAs that we talk about, Revolutions in Financial Affairs, is we, we just call it Bretton Woods, okay. right? Um, but we definitely talk about the transition from uh, from the pound to the dollar. And we talk about it as something, um, and I think that a lot of domains are like this, right? Um, that uh, a, a, a revolution in, in any, some particular kind of affairs, naval affairs or financial affairs, is both reflective of a hegemonic change, but it also enables and uh, makes that hegemonic change more 
enduring. Um, One thing that's interesting is that sort of reading back on how a lot of strategic thinkers are thinking about power and are thinking about influence, right? They're, they're quite clearly not blind to the idea that the pound is really, really important and, and that British, British control over the pound is really important. Um, and so, you know, a great example of this is um, the ability of the United States and the United Kingdom to, to simply end the Russo-Japanese War in 1905-1906, right? You know, Japan is winning. Uh, Japan doesn't want to make peace necessarily, certainly not on the terms that was offered, but the United States and the United Kingdom simply say, it's over, right? You may, whatever resources you may have is fine, but we're simply going to stop lending you money and your government will go bankrupt. Um, and there are lots of other examples of that, but that's one that's in sort of in great power war. It makes me think also of in 1956 when the United States wants to put an end to the Suez adventure. Uh, this is, of course, a, a, the very big moment when the United States says, we, the United States, can start a run on the pound as a way to stop the British from doing something we don't want them to do. Right, exactly. I'm nodding vigorously yeah, here so for right. podcast listeners. Yeah. Well, because it, it's funny because I hadn't thought about it in this way before, but that's an even more intense example of the transition because now it's not only is the dollar dominant, but the dollar is so dominant that it can be used against its former uh, against its its former mentor, the pound. Right, right, absolutely. And, and one of the really sort of truly interesting things about this for, for, from our perspective um, is that you know, often both British and American policymakers, they, they fully recognize the power and certainly the French fully recognize because they never have that kind of hegemony. Um, right. So they they know that they know they ain't got it. So right, they know what right. it means. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's full there, there, there is large sort of recognition that this power exists. Um, but, you know, often in on both the British cases and certainly in the American cases, um, there's almost annoyance. Right. It's not so much we can we can use this to crush our enemies as, well, this is awfully annoying that we have to do this whole reserve currency thing. And I I don't think it's really until, you know, perhaps in the last two decades that people are coming, policymakers are coming to this full recognition. It's like this is true ability to to make power liquid, right? Mm-hmm. To reach out and touch people and reach out and influence people. Um, and I think, you know, any domain changes, right? So the maritime domain changes a great deal when the air domain is invented, right? right. Because uh, it changes how ships operate. It changes the kind of ships that you want. It changes how naval wars happen. Um, I think that the development, the creation of the cyber uh, domain really does change how the finance domain operates in that it makes obvious to policymakers all of these tools of influence that perhaps before had been implicit, perhaps before had been available, but now sort of the availability of massive amounts of data, the ability to track these dollars that people have been using, sure, since 1945, and that gave the United States a lot of influence. But now we can see where all of these dollars are going in real time, and we can monitor where they are, and we can reach into banks around the world and take away the money of people we don't like. Which makes me think about uh, an important development is where does the development of cryptocurrency fit into the finance domain? Because what you've just described this is exactly why people would say we need cryptocurrency so that somebody can't follow where our money's going or they can't take it away from us. So do you do you consider the the crypto phenomenon in this book? We have we have a little bit about crypto at the end and, mm-hmm. and part it was because none of us could quite 
None of us. We were trying to <laughs> grapple with crypto sure. as crypto itself was uh, enduring a, a number of transformations, right? Um, you know, one way we wanted to approach crypto, and I think that if there hadn't been some pretty profound transformations in crypto just in the last year, um, is we wanted to, to approach it in the way it was very similar to what you just described, right? right? That, that crypto is a financial weapon of the week. So we know from the other domains that there are lots of weapons of the week, that there are technologies that particularly favor, that favor insurgents, right? That, in fa- that favor smaller states or that change the balance of power within uh, a particular domain. And to us, it really looked like crypto was one of these things, mm-hmm. right? That this was a technological development within the finance domain that was essentially going to operate as um, a weapon of the week. Not, not necessarily a weapon of the week in the sense of, of being insurgents, but it was, it was going to allow um, non-state actors, uh, sort of extra-legal actors, criminals, terrorists, freedom fighters, I don't care, call them whatever you want, them whatever you want. Um, North Korea, Russia, um, you know, sort of lots of different actors to be able to evade, elude the power of the U.S. dollar. And I think so we kind of stepped back from that a little bit, and we kind of stepped back from it a little bit, I think, for two reasons. Um, the first reason was crypto markets have gone really belly up. Yeah. Um, not completely. It's, they're still important, but crypto markets have suffered some pretty yeah. – and, and that could turn around in five years. Um, but I think that we were then a little bit shy about coming to really big conclusions about what crypto was going to mean when it felt like crypto was in the midst of being really well, transformed. When, when crypto stops being, uh, when crypto stops being this weapon of the week uh, new currency and starts being the tulip bulb of the 21st century, um, because that's I think is is the struggle with crypto, right? Even when even people who are selling crypto can't quite. Uh, articulate what makes crypto different from any other commodity that you happen to be selling, right? That, that sort of losing the plot a little bit on it as a uh, currency, which of course, you know, so the idea that the, the, the big challenge, the big strategic challenge to the United States, uh, the People's Republic of China, right? That the Chinese, uh, what they are attempting to do, or they make, they're making gestures in the direction of trying to unseat the dollar, right? To create a petro, petro yuan or whatever. And, and it is interesting, right? Is that the Chinese don't see crypto as the answer. They see basically, we're just going to try to develop, uh, uh, a currency of our own that will be a reserve currency, or if, if not to replace, at least to compete with the dollar. So this is to use another analogy in a different domain. This is, you know, we're not going to, if you're going to build a dreadnought, then we'll just build a dreadnought too, or we'll build an air force, an aircraft carrier. And that's too. what they're doing. That's they're what they're doing. Aircraft carriers. And they're building yeah. the aircraft carriers too. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. And so, so that's what I'm thinking is the, the idea of if, if the one big example we have of a currency replacing another reserve currency is the the Anglo-American shift, which is in other literature talks about the the sort of the unusually peaceful nature of that transition. Do we have any examples of um, aggressive, uh, competitive shift in reserve currency? I'm trying to think when the when the when the pound came, did the pound replace anybody in particular, or did it simply emerge from a from a field of competitors? So I'm gonna I'm gonna you have two answers here. So sure. first thing I'm gonna answer is sort of the question you implied earlier, yeah. right? This this thing about crypto in China, right? One of the other reasons we we decided not to really talk a lot about crypto as being a weapon of the week is because both the Russians and the Chinese seem to hate crypto, right? Um, <laughs> right. And and the 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 reasons why are really obvious when you think about it, which is that you know crypto is an outstanding weapon for people who oppose the Chinese and Russian regimes, sure. right? And so for an authoritarian country, crypto is not the answer. Yeah. A digital currency mm-hmm. for China 
might be the answer because it might have this sort of reserve situation um, and be able to take over from the dollar or at least or at least compete with the dollar. But crypto is not the answer because the Chinese want to be able to track every single transaction that's happening. Um, and so, you know, in terms of previous transitions, uh, so yes, the, the British pound emerges from, you know, this field of competitors from what is a really fluid and complex. And this is one where sort of your real serious financial historians of the late, mer- late medieval and early modern period will be astounded by the violence I'm doing to the story. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, the, 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 the pound emerges and, and, and the pound emerges um, sort of in the context of, you know, struggles for maritime hegemony between... Uh, Britain, France, and uh, the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if the Napoleonic Wars had turned out differently, right, especially on the colonial side, where, where the pound gave the British an immense uh, capacity for managing international trade, for influencing um, the ability of, uh, of states around the world to do what they wanted to do in a military context, um, yeah, then the story might have been, been a lot different. Um, it might, we might be thinking about the French franc instead of as being the central currency instead of uh, the British pound. But there, yeah, there are other contexts in which you have real financial competition and destructive financial competition. So, um, you know, we tell a lot of stories in, in uh, sort of in Chinese history about how destructive financial competition happens. Um, and one of those stories is sort of the outrush of silver um, from China because of trade and the damage that that inflicts on not only on the Chinese economy writ large, but particularly on the ability of the Chinese state to mobilize military power. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's certainly a currency story. It's, it's where a, a China's currency is being replaced, um, essentially, by um, a different currency, which is making the Chinese state less capable of mobilizing resources. Um, you, have a, you have a similar story uh, in early competition between the Byzantine Empire and the early uh, Islamic polities, mm-hmm. um, where you know, much of the enduring power of the eastern half of the Roman Empire was derived from its ability to control the monetary system. Right, that it controlled trade because it still held um, it could control trade even to the West because it still held the reins of how money was made, mm-hmm. um, and that really started changing when uh, a lot of the early uh, early Islamic polities, the early Islamic states, began developing their own currency zones and began changing basically the whole terms of trade, and that you know was one of the things that attrited away the power mm-hmm. of the uh, of the uh, sort of late Eastern Roman Empire. Right. And so so we'll have to see what happens with the, the dollar has been the heavyweight champion for 80 years, almost. Yeah, since, you know, yeah, since, since the 40s. Since the 40s. Yeah. And so we'll have to see what comes next. But if we want to know what comes next, we need to know how we got here. And we can know how we got here by checking out Waging War with Gold, National Security in the Finance Domain Across the Ages. And one of the co-authors of that book, Rob Farley, has been with us today. We touched on many of these things. I hope people will track down the book. And I hope that you have great success talking about it here at the War College and other places. Rob Farley, thanks for joining us on A Better Peace. Thanks for having me here. And thanks all of you for joining us. Please send us your comments about this program and all the programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please uh, make sure that you have subscribed to A Better Peace, because why wouldn't you want to subscribe to A Better Peace? And after you have subscribed, please rate and review this podcast, because that's how other people can find out about us, too. We're always interested in growing this community for conversations like this one. And even if this conversation is over, we look forward to welcoming all of you to the next one. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. 
The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.